How you doing? I'm Andrew Sherman with Kelleher and Sadowski. Uh, we're here today to talk about the life science market, uh, specifically the, the demand over the last several years um, with the amount of life science tenants, the education uh, infrastructure we have within Massachusetts, Worcester, and Boston specifically. Uh, so we're here today to talk about uh, the demand, the companies, where we think we're going to be going, where it's the impact of the uh, pandemic right now. Um, so today we're going to be sitting down with three fine gentlemen who all have special specialties within the industry. All do very similar things, but all do very differently different things at the same time. So uh, fortunate to work alongside all three of them in some components, one way or the other. Um, so uh, to start, we'll start with John. So John, if you wouldn't uh, mind introducing yourself, giving a quick introduction to yourself and also MBI and, and what you guys do here in Worcester. Sure. So I'm John Weaver with Massachusetts Biomedical Initiatives. Uh, MBI is the longest-running biotech incubator in the state of Mass, and um, in it, home to 54 early-stage life science companies. So um, we also are an economic development catalyst here in the city, working with our partners to promote uh, real estate economic development projects like the Worcester Bio Manufacturing Park, the Reactory, and we also run a, a workforce development initiative in partnership with QCC, Worcester State University, and the Massachusetts Office of Business Development. Awesome, thank you. Thanks for having me. Quentin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thank Good. you for having us. No Good problem. to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Well, uh, and uh, for those who don't know McCord, McCord is a uh, Houston-based developer, but now entered into the Massachusetts life science marketplace. So we would uh, take, a, take a few words to, to explain who McCord is and, and what you guys are striving to do in Massachusetts. Yeah, we, we, we are a Houston-based, uh, fully integrated real estate company founded in 1973, uh, we developed or owned approximately 5 million square feet of commercial space and 6,700 apart, 6, apartment units. Uh, we expanded to Boston uh, approximately a year and a half ago and uh, are excited to recently announce our first investment in that space um, in Northborough at 30 Barefoot Road. Um, and in Houston, we're uh, the developer of a 4,200-acre commercial business park called Generation Park. Thank you. Aaron? Thanks, um, thanks for having me, Andrew. Oh, of course. Uh, Aaron Hall, Left Field. We are uh, project managers. We help clients uh, you know, develop and, and support the development and support the construction in their new spaces and everything from feasibility to, uh, from cl feasibility to close out. So. You have a, probably a tougher job than all because you have to manage all of us. Yeah, <laughs> try to manage a developer. <laughs> right. Um, well, awesome. Well, thanks for all the quick intros. Um, so going back to John, um, one of the questions that, you know, I'd always thought about is kind of where do you, if you were to go and pick a, a, a building, a facility, a location, what are the two or three components that you really look at or focus on, you and your board and your, your organization, as far as identifying a right sweet spot for your, for your company? Sure. Um, well, we just went through that process. Aaron was actually a big help as we evaluated some sites. Um, and we went through a strategic planning effort that really looked at a uh, mix of geography, um, proximity to other assets, and then also um, kind of the, the core infrastructure of the building, making sure that the building was well-suited to that. Um, and the process we went through, we really found that um, kind of key fit for us was being close to um, life science existing core facilities. So we chose a building in, in Worcester's Gateway Park, close to WPI's uh, core equipment, their life science bioengineering center, their new um, their new medical device center as well, and also just down the street from the UMass Medical uh, Schools project. And in looking at the building, we want to make sure it had the right 
utilities, um, all those types of pieces, but also that it had proximity to other life science assets. So I think that was a key part of, of the way we approached our project. So three assets totaling, how much would you say square footage-wise? So MBI manages about 50,000 square feet of space, um, including uh, we just completed our project at 17 Bryden Street, which, which um, took us from 25 to 50. So we just recently, in the last few months, doubled our space here in the city and, and are already off to a great start at our grand opening of that new facility. We already had 17 early-stage companies in the door, which brought us to about 45% occupancy of that building and about 75% across our portfolio. So That's great. Um, you know, despite doubling our space, we've seen you know, incredible demand for life science um, startups here in the city of Worcester. That's awesome. And, and do you, did you see any slowdown with the pandemic? I mean, given life science is an essential workforce, yeah. did you see any slowdown? Do you see an uptick because of the pandemic, or how do you see it impacting your occupancy? Yeah, so um, you know, back in March, we, we were having some fears that maybe we underbuilt because we had really um, we, we had interest in about 80% of the space in the new building that we were taking on. Um, we did see a, a quick slowdown where I think a lot of people sat on the sidelines and maybe this isn't the time for me to start my company. Um, but that's quickly been turning around. Mm-hmm. And, and now about you know, 45% of those people came back now. Well, we're already having conversations with, a, with an additional group that could bring us to 60 or 70% in that new building by the end of the year. So, so we're really bullish on the biotech cluster here in the city. And, um, you know, fortunately, I think for all of us, biotech has continued, and I think um, hopefully will be part that keeps the economy driving. I know a lot of people are, are hurting right now, um, but hopefully biotech can keep the jobs going, find a cure, and really try to help propel us into recovery. And so propelling, do you guys see yourself growing outside of Worcester? I know you guys have wanted to grow outside of this area, but what do you think will help yeah. Uh, cat- catalyst, be a catalyst to help you guys get into other markets. Yeah, so the, the Worcester story is a great one, and there's a lot of good activity going on here in the city, and we want to be part of that and continue to grow here. But I think, um, you know, we're Massachusetts Biomedical Initiative, so we're certainly looking at other opportunities, um, both, both east and west, to try to see how we can help um, foster different parts of the cluster. Our goal is, is how do we make, um, you know, how do we support the complementary component of the cluster rather than trying to compete within the cluster? Mm-hmm. Um, so where can MBI go, lend assets, and try to help expand the cluster's continued growth? Well, it's a good segue into mm-hmm. Quentin as far as, you know, what you guys do, what you specialize in. And John certainly helps companies grow their businesses to hopefully get into a facility such as yours, which is a 60,000-square-foot building. But um, as far as some of the attributes that MBI might look at, what do you think – a tenant who's what I would look at 30 barefoot, are they focused on location or are they looking at where can I pull the most talent from? What do you think tenants are looking at right now as far as some of their key drivers and their requirements? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things, but the, the number one thing is really whether the space is uh, functionally helpful to um, what they're trying to accomplish, their science. And so when we talk about kind of advanced stages of clinical or biomanufacturing, we're really trying to provide a space that's helpful to their progress and their pipeline. Um, and then kind of additionally, as you pointed out, talent would be another big thing, thinking about who are the people that are going to help them pursue that research or make those therapeutics. Um, and then finally, it's, it's really uh, certainty and schedule. So these companies are long-term oriented and that the uh, approval and development process can, you know, take 10 to 15 years or even more in some cases, but the need for space and growth is very event-driven. 
And so they may receive favorable results or raise some capital or ultimately get some sort of approval from um, from uh, the FDA or whoever uh, oversight organization they have. And so they really you know, need someone to de-risk the real estate aspect for them and to provide that space. And you know, John does that for companies that are starting you know, um, and, and even growing quite large now. Mm-hmm. Um, and our hope is to kind of continue that on and provide that space and provide that functional kind of solution for them um, as they get bigger and bigger. Yeah, well, that's actually what my next question was going to be is what are the, some of the differentiators that McCord can provide a tenant day one because I know what you guys do, but it'd be great for the audience to hear is entering in this life science market, which is very competitive. There's a lot of landlords that have been doing this for a while. What do you think some of your differentiators that you need to, they'll set you guys apart or, or de-risk a tenant that doesn't know you. They might know mm-hmm. an Alexandria or a Longfellow or a King street. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the first thing I should say is I have a tremendous amount of respect for everyone that does do that in the market because they're, uh, very good at it and very good to their customers, and they're certainly valued for that reason. I, I think for us, it really starts with um, listening to the tenant and really understanding what they want and making sure that you're cognizant of that and providing that. And that's kind of that's ultimately how we arrive at geography or attributes of a building um, and sort of digesting kind of that narrative, that basis of design, those kind of objectives that they have. And then interpreting that internally and being honest about your blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. And trying to de-risk that, um, whether that's internally or working with someone like Aaron, as he does with many developers and many organizations and institutions, to provide that certainty and that that solution for them. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So, Aaron, um, as I'm sure you've worked with variety of different tenants, landlords, developers. Um, if you could give a couple examples of kind of what, how you help everyone play nicely in the sandbox, I guess, sort of say. Um, if you were to quickly elaborate on that you aspect. Know, Quentin hit on a couple of, couple of the big parts, but you know, when, we, when we have a new client that comes to us and you know, like John did says, help us out, uh, really the first thing we need to understand is the program. How is this program, what, is it, what does it look like? How's it gonna function in this new space? Does this space even qualify? Um, how do we, you know, how do we take this list of ten or fifteen potential buildings or ten or fifteen potential lots? Uh, are we building new? Are we repositioning an existing building? Um, and then try to fit those programs in. Those are quick exercises to say, you know, these are real easy to get rid of these opportunities or these potentials quickly. Um, and then, like Quentin said, it's, it's looking at that program and looking at, you know, the building is one part, the talent pool is another part. Um, the local ecosystems, another part. How is how does the science that this potential tenant have? Um, how is that supported locally? Uh, in, you know, very close region, and then as you expand, how does that work? Is uh, can they is the infrastructure there to get um, uh, science back and forth from some of their supporting mm-hmm. vendors and stuff like that? And so actually, one of the things I was thinking about is I know, I've gone to buildings with you before and. Quinn and Aaron and John as well. When you go to a building and someone says we were lab ready, I feel like everyone right now is saying they're lab capable or they're lab ready. Um, I'm sure you've heard that a bunch in the last few years, but what do you first look at a building when someone's trying to identify, can we do this? And I'm sure the answer is you can do anything with money, but on a practical standpoint and giving your landlords a good basis to start from a good 
ground to understand what they have to put into a building. What yeah. are the key components that you look at? It really goes back to the program um, because this tenant's lab may be, uh, the program may be a lot different than this tenant's program. So, um, you know, some tenant may need just some standard BSL-2 entry-level space like John needs, um, whereas Barefoot Road is, you know, more CGMP-level type stuff. And those, those two um, are, are very different. Uh, so looking at the space and saying, what level of lab are we doing here? What level of um, science are we are we doing here? And can the building even support that? Um, you know, if, just because you're lab ready, you may not have a generator. Um, you know, typically, um, you know, the, the buildings that we're retrofitting or repositioning, um, all the mechanical systems need to be new to support the labs because they're not built for labs mm-hmm. to begin with, even though they they say they're ready. But um, right. So we are working with some developers that are building um, spec labs, and, and, and that in itself is a challenge because as we build this and you, you, you get yourself uh, very focused on a, a potential type of lab, and then as a user comes in, it's, uh, we have to be able to shift and change quickly to both support those new requirements, those new user requirements. Got it. And um, given the pandemic and everything, do you see or have you heard a conversation with tenants specifically more so that they want to, being in a single single tenant in a single story flex building, or are they still is it not really predict, pro- progress into that, or do you think no, it might inter- progress into that? Interestingly enough, we are working with a handful of smaller users right now because in order for them to safely develop their science, they need to expand into larger areas so that they can you know work in a socially distanced fashion mm-hmm. inside their labs. Uh, so we're we're doing a couple of renovations right now where we're supporting tenants in multiple different buildings so that they can work safely and, and uh, further apart, I guess. And as the square footage per person change, I mean, I guess for office it's you know call it two hundred square two hundred square feet per person. Has that changed? I mean, life science, chemistry, biology lab is already set up for social distancing, I guess you could say. But has that number changed at all? Uh, not really. It it really comes down to um, um, you know the write up space and the uh, the Wii space that the people are putting into their um, into their buildings, you know, um, how they're taking that back and looking at how we how we create a flexible space. So now we can, you know, we have to work differently now due to the pandemic. But you know, two or three years, what's this going to look like? Are we going to want to be um, back to how everything was progressing into more uh, you know collaborative workspace? Mm-hmm. Um, well, thanks for thanks for that. And um, going back to John, I think we had. Talked about earlier, but your success rate of you know seventy five or your your uh, occupancy of about seventy five percent. How many tenants? I think you said you had fifty companies. I mean, excuse me, fifty seven companies. We have about fifty five companies within the our total incubator portfolio right now. And so, do you do you guys measure like from them being an MBI to growing out and going into a larger facility? Do you guys have um, kind of? I'm sure you can think of tenants uh, companies on the top of your top of your head, but. I'm just curious to know how many of those companies have gone to the next level and needed, you know, bigger yeah. scales of everything. Um, yeah, so we, we track metrics amongst our companies, and um, typically we're able to track those metrics typically for about the first five years after they graduate, at which point a lot of times new management's in, acquisitions occur, things of that nature gets tough. But um, we do try to we do an annual survey every year in which we, we try to, to track those numbers down. Um, those companies, about 79% of the companies that have graduated from MBI have um, what we call consider successes, which means they operated outside the incubator for at least that five-year period or were acquired. 
Um, additionally, they, they employ over almost 900 people in the, the Massachusetts economy. Almost 900 people work at companies founded at MBI. And some of those examples include um, companies like Viacel, which is a part of Perkin Elmer. It was acquired by them. Um, there's a group called Convergent Dental that's in Needham with over 100 employees who also does some manufacturing locally. And um, you know, Lake Pharma is another group that started as a, a company here at MBI mm-hmm. called Blue Sky Bioservices, was eventually acquired by Lake Pharma, and now their Massachusetts presence is over 100 people. Wow. Um, and they're actually venturing into biomanufacturing, which is one of our priority areas. So, um, yeah, good trajectory. You know, these companies, they start small, but they grow quickly, and, and they do well. And can you elaborate on the two different kind of uh, different sectors you have within the uh, your program? You have a scale-up? And then sure. Yeah, so we had, so MBI has historically had what we've called our, our startup centers, and, and those centers individual private suites um, for for the earliest stage founders. So if they, they wanted to have a, a closet with a biosafety cabinet to get started, they can do that, and then they can grow over time flexibly to get up to about to about 600 to about 1,000 square feet. And that's historically been our model, and from that point they would leave and go off to the private sector and, and carry on from there. But that jump from about 1,000 square feet to about you know, 10,000 or to about five or 10,000 square feet, which is where the, mm-hmm. most of your, um, your landlords are, um, was tough. And that, and that caused them to take a step they weren't really ready for. So what we've done in our new facility here with support from the Life Science Center is um, built what we call now our scale-up center. And that scale-up center has labs up to about 2,000 square feet with probably an average of one to 1,500 square feet where companies can take one or two of those labs as kind of a teenage years, their adolescence, before they make the jump out into the private sector. It just makes that transition more, um, you know, more sustainable for those companies in those really challenging early years. That's great. Um, and just to kind of reiterate what we were talking about earlier about Massachusetts in general with Worcester having all the education, the colleges and whatnot, and having all the colleges and universities in Boston, at least from the brokerage side of things, I'm definitely seeing a uh, clear path between Cambridge mm-hmm. now to 128, now to 495, and to Worcester. I think you know it took a, took a long time for that to come to fruition, but I don't think we're I think we're almost probably right there. Um, would you guys say? I mean, chime in at any point. Would you guys say that we're pretty much uh, from Worcester to Cambridge? I mean, there's there's pockets popping up everywhere. I would say. Yeah. So my predecessor Kevin O'Sullivan has been banging the drum on what he's called the Massachusetts Biomedical Corridor for years now, and it really feels like that biomedical corridor between Cambridge and and, and Worcester is really coming to reality. And we're promoting this concept of. Um, Kendall Square to Lincoln Square here in Worcester and, and trying to find ways to be complementary of the cluster. Um, Worcester shouldn't necessarily be competing with Cambridge. Cambridge is a world-class epicenter of, of biotech technology. Um, but what are the parts of that industry that could be located outside the city and how might that better serve us all? And, and how can we take advantage of all of the assets throughout the Commonwealth to make a more sustainable growth path for the industry as it continues to explode? Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's I think especially to your last point, John, about um, competitive versus collaborative. I mean, it's not um, – there seems to be this conventional narrative that you're in one place or another, and increasingly that's, like, what's the case. I mean, there's collaboration that occurs in all these different places, and I think what, what we're seeing is some of these companies are now having multiple locations simply because – Either A, they're trying to reach a wider pool of talent and not compete for those same people within one location, or B, they might have different needs. You know, you might have a company that is looking to do 
uh, more R&D in downtown Worcester or in downtown Kendall Square or Watertown or Boston and look for those lunchtime and, you know, notwithstanding pandemic, you know, actual interactions on the street, whereas you have other kind of uses of these spaces as they grow that would be for more biomanufacturing or the supply chain where it's much more of a, we need a repeated, repeatable, reliable process and we need to be that, you know, environment that's a little bit different of the um, exploratory, um, I would say. And so they're kind of, you know, orienting those uses and looking at all these different markets, Worcester, Boston, everywhere in between north and south to sort of, you know, try to meet those needs. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm just blocking out my, what, I'm, what I'm only going to say. Um, Cut that out. But uh, one of the questions that I had, I, just, uh, I lost on the top of my head, but um, Aaron, have you seen any themes or kind of underlying common denominators for project costs with the pandemic as far as tenant build-outs? I mean, are they are folks looking to bifurcate their offices maybe if they have, say, 100,000 square feet in Cambridge? Are folks looking to maybe say, I'll do 20,000 square feet of office in somewhere in the Boston, urban Boston, but then I want to do, you know, 50,000 square feet out in the suburbs. Are you seeing that at all? Uh, not so much. Um, you know, what we are seeing is just a change in their behaviors and how they're working. Um, you know, they're, uh, you know, they may have different shifts or different hours that they're working, uh, but uh, I don't think anybody's really, at least our clients, haven't jumped and said, "All right, we have to completely change uh, how we how we work and go get new space just mm-hmm. because of the pandemic." I think they've, I think for the immediate time, they're going to just change their work behaviors and their work practices instead of going out and making a bunch of new capital expenses. Sure. Um, we have seen, um, you know, we have seen some pricing come down. Uh, you know, some of the bigger subcontractors are, you know, they're, they're not as aggressive. They're still pretty picky about who they're working for. Um, they want to work for good clients. They want to get paid on time. Um, and some of the smaller subcontractors are, are, you know, they are getting a little bit more aggressive than, uh, than they had been. But, uh, material prices continue to escalate. Um, there's a lot of demand in the industry, especially locally right here. So uh, we haven't seen as big of a drop in the life science costs as we would hope that the pandemic would, would put pressure on. Yeah, I feel like office has you know, taken kind of a pause right now, but the life science world seems like it's been, hasn't really Yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't slowed down. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, I, we haven't seen it slow down either, so it's, it's impressive that, They've been able to weather the storm, whether you're a life science startup or looking at a 60,000 square foot GMP facility. So um, that's about all I had for today. So I appreciate all you guys' time. It's good uh, educational talk. So hopefully we'll do this again soon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Of course. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time. Uh, it's been uh, been great to talk with Aaron, Quinn, and John uh, regarding the life science market in Massachusetts. Uh, So from Kelleher and Sadowski and the rest of the team here, uh, thanks. And if you ever have any needs regarding relocations, renewals, site selections, questions, feel free to call us at any time. Um, As Kelleher and Sadowski is expanding into the uh, Boston market, Metro West primarily, then into 128, feel free to give us a call for any questions or inquiries. Thanks so much.